Red Rocks, how you doing? You guys good? Come on, then help me say hello to the amazing women at our GBB campus. Ladies, we love you so much. Nehemiah, thanks, bro. Hey, there were 97 women who gathered today at God Behind Bars. That's the most we've had so far. And so honored and so blessed to have you as part of this church family. Welcome to week one of this new teaching series called Pendulum. And if you are as excited to hear this as I am to preach this, then we're in for a good day of church. I mean, we got a wrecking ball on stage for crying out loud. And I think, like Ryan said, this is gonna be a challenging sermon series. And today, I simply wanna um, set everything up. This is sort of an introduction message. And I wanna go straight to one Bible verse in John chapter one, verse 14. This verse is basically the entire scriptures and the gospel in one verse, and it's this. The word, somebody say the word. word. That's capital W, which means that's Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Two words you're gonna hear me say about 100 times each today. He came full of grace and truth. Because you know, a lot of people today ask the question, is God really real? And if he's real, does he even love us? I think even a lot of Christians in challenging times and difficult seasons ask similar questions. Is God really for me? Does God really have my best interest at heart? If I can't see him working in my life, is God actually working behind the scenes in my life or not? And the truth is, you don't have to look any further than John 1, verse 14, that answers all of those questions once and for all, that the word became flesh, the word is Jesus, which means the God of the universe who was there in the beginning put on skin and bone and came to this planet because his love initiated towards you and your brokenness and your mess. That's what this God thinks about you. And of all the ways John could have described God as holy or righteous or perfect or set apart, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the lion and the lamb, John chose to use those two words to make sure you knew this above everything else about the substance of this God. He is in the fullness of grace and he is in the fullness of truth. When you encounter God, you're having an encounter with grace and truth, amen? Years ago, um, my former pastor told me a story of a young lady who came through his church. And um, she had grown up in a very legalistic household where she was told uh, she had to wear a dress that covered even her, her ankles to church every Sunday or she'd go to hell. I'm not kidding like super healthy, I say that so sarcastically. That's not true, just in case anybody here needs to hear that. Um, but that's just her parents, her pastors, this is a very, very fear-based religion. And as soon as she left for college, she walked away from that faith, obviously. I probably would have too. Sometimes when you're walking away from religion, you're actually walking towards Jesus and you just don't know it yet. So she walked away from it, and, uh, and then one morning, years later, she showed up to church one morning when Pastor Matt was preaching, and he was wearing jeans and a t-shirt, and she said, as silly as it sounds, that set me free. The pastor preaching in jeans and a t-shirt set me free, which is good news if you go here, because all I got is jeans and a t-shirt. I'm dressed up right now, okay? This is me dressed up, looking 
looking fancy, all right? Jeans and a t-shirt set her free. And of course, what she's experiencing for the first time is this, the, the part of our God, it actually is who our God is, that would say, you don't have to clean up your life. You don't have to get your act together before you come to me. You just need to come to Jesus and taste and see how good he really is. We'll take care of the rest from there. Just come and experience what this God actually thinks about you. And she did, and it changed everything about her life until Easter Sunday when Pastor Matt decided he was feeling fancy and wanted to get his Billy Graham and Justin Timberlake on with his suit and tie and preached in a suit and tie and it triggered her. Um, So much so that she wrote him a very angry email about why she was leaving the church. And just very like, I can't, but you don't even know what you did. Like I, you don't know my history. I, this was my baggage with fear-based religion and I ran from the church, but then I came here and you were jeans and a t-shirt. It set me free, but then on Easter, you were wearing a suit. And she said, and I kid you not, how dare you? So I knew this whole thing was too good to be true. I'm finding a new church and then sincerely a concerned sibling in Christ because that's how all of those emails are ended. Um, <laughs> Not that I would know. Um, And I'm not here to poke fun at her because every behavior has a backstory. We know that. That's why there's not a soul you couldn't learn to love if you took the time to get to know them. Every behavior has a backstory and we all got our triggers. But my point is, I, I don't know if you know, she now has the same pride as her parents, just a different dress code. She said, she... Same fear, but she just swung the dress code from this side to this side. But it's the same fear. Freedom is not, I can show up to church and worship if the pastor's in jeans and a t-shirt and we can come as we, freedom is, I can go to any church and whether it's a dress or a three-piece suit or ripped jeans and a t-shirt, I can raise my hands and worship God. But we are a people of pendulum swings. Let's talk about the pendulum. We are a people of pendulum swings. Paleo to vegan, paleo to vegan, baggy jeans to skinny jeans, baggy jeans to skinny jeans. Here's, I'll explain it this way. My generation has tattoos. My parents' generation doesn't really have tattoos. I'm convinced my kids' generation won't have tattoos, but their kids will. So decades from now, I'll be with my grandkids. We'll all be tatted up listening to rap music and Blink-182 while my kids and my parents judge us for it, right? We are a people of pendulum swings. And it's fascinating, even in church methodology, if you pay attention, I just think it's so fascinating because let's talk about something called the megachurch for the last few decades has had a lot of fruit and made a lot of impact, the megachurch has. Millions of souls coming to know Jesus and resources in the figures where we are funding organizations around the world, literally changing the world. So much good, but also some, a lot of bad. And so what happens is movements rise up out of the messiness and say, well, if there's bad over here, then let's swing the pendulum straight to the other side. Let's start house church movements. We don't need the lights and the, 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 the speakers. Let's get back to the book of Acts, so much more organic. I had a conversation in a lobby with a guy recently who said, I can't believe you guys have an LED screen. Jesus wouldn't have an LED screen. I don't care about an LED screen. And I said, it kind of seems like you do care about an LED screen. 
maybe more than anybody else in our church. I said, dude, it's a, it's a method. The message is sacred. Methods come and go. If Jesus had electricity, he'd probably have that. It's very helpful. <laughs> Methods come and go. The message is sacred. You get a lot of fruit and a lot of frustrations from big churches. You get a lot of fruit and a lot of frustrations from smaller churches. Be careful you don't get stuck on riding the pendulum back and forth with the same pride, just a different dress code. Here's my question, and here's where I'm going with this. What if... What if we could embrace the humble and teachable spirit that says, let's take a play from that playbook and let's take some plays from that playbook. Let's not throw everything away over here. Let's not throw everything away over here. Let's, to maximize our impact on this planet, making heaven more crowded and earth looking more like heaven in the process as we do it. What if we could build, what if we could build a small church with lots of people? A church that reached people searching for Jesus. By the way, in our city, a million of them desperately looking for something have no idea it's actually Jesus. What if we could build a church big enough to get all those people here to experience what this God thinks about them, yet at the same time, nobody's getting lost in a crowd in the lobby and everybody is needed and known. A church where on the weekends we gather together in big crowds in a, in a tabernacle, so to speak, but then on the weekdays we gather in circles around tables in homes. Like what if, we, what if we could build a church where we fought to keep it feeling like family, but it still, it still grew to the point where we could continue giving away hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and one day soon millions of dollars a year to have, to have as maximum impact as we possibly could. The humble and teachable spirit of not just opting for the same pride, but a different dress code, but one that would go, I wonder if we can learn here and I wonder if we could if we could, what does it look like to embrace the mystery of the middle? Here's another one. Uh, Jesus is the lion and the lamb. The conquering lion of Judah and the suffering lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And our invitation is to know him as both. I'll say it this way. You need to know him as both. Because there's whole denominations, movements, and churches that are founded on relating to Jesus only as the conquering lion and his victorious spirit that has overcome the world. And that's true, but it's incomplete. And then there's churches, denominations, and movements founded on only relating to Jesus as the suffering lamb. And that's right, but it's incomplete. Our invitation is to know him as both. He is the one king with the two different faces, like most aspects of the mystery of the God whose ways and thoughts are so much higher and beyond ours. It's not either or, it's a both and. And we need to learn how to stand in the tension between two things that seem to be different but are actually true at the same time. This past Monday, a young lady from our church named Lexi DeYoung, uh, passed away at the age of 28 from complications with diabetes. She was an influencer in the world of fitness. Part of her testimony, she overcame an eating disorder 
and since then has helped over a thousand young women overcome eating disorders. She loved this church and uh, now she's with Jesus. And what I would say to her family and friends in this room and then indirectly to anybody who's walking through pain and loss right now or whoever will walk through pain and loss in your life is this. Jesus is the lamb who draws near to you and comforts you in these moments and seasons. And Jesus is the lion who overcomes and makes waves. And you need to know him as both. Because when you get that life-changing phone call in the middle of the night, or that diagnosis, or walking through seasons of unemployment, or walking through seasons of, of loss, and you only know Jesus as the conquering lion who overcomes everything, you're gonna be really confused about the presence of pain in your life. And at the same time, if you only know Jesus as the suffering lamb, he's gonna draw near to you in that pain, but you're not gonna know where to go from there. You're not gonna know that, yeah, in this world you have trouble, but we also have a Jesus who somehow at the same time has overcome the entire, the entire world. One king with two faces that invites you to know him as both. I'll say it this way. Lexi's life was lost this week and the lamb of God empathizes. He doesn't just understand pain. We have a, a high priest who, who goes, I know that feeling. I've cried tears with you. That's what the Lamb of God does. And also, because of the conquering lion that he also is at the same time, Lexi is more alive right now than she has ever been and any of us currently are. I promise you that. The conquering lion. One king, two faces. And sometimes he'll speak to you as the conquering lion who on Sunday walked out of the grave that he borrowed and overcame the entire world through whom you can do all things. And sometimes, maybe even on the same morning, he'll speak to you as the suffering lamb who is familiar with every tear that you cry and every ounce of pain that you feel. Jesus is both. Question is, can you embrace the paradox of the pendulum? Here's another one. Would, uh, would Jesus have been a Republican? Take a breath. Or would Jesus have been a Democrat? Well, I mean, I think it's pretty clear, Pastor, that 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 says, if you're not willing to work, you don't get to eat. Like, that's scripture. It really is. That's scripture. But Acts chapter 4 is all about the church and everybody in it selling their homes and selling land and all the money being distributed to those who had need. That's scripture. I would say both are true and both are incomplete without the other and need each other. That's why you can only interpret scripture with scripture. Can you embrace the paradox of the pendulum? That's why we, like Jesus, are oftentimes called to, I would say this is what leaders do. They're willing to be tethered to the tension. Does this posture look familiar to anybody? Tethered to the tension. Embracing sometimes the messiness of, of the in-between. 
Because you can find the echo chamber that will reaffirm all of your rightness out there or out there. You can, you can, you can raise a lot of money out there. You can sell a lot of books out there. But oftentimes you can only solve problems and grow right here. In Joshua chapter five, he is uh, on his way to, to Jericho with the whole Israelite army where they go to Jericho and they walk like the, the seven times around the walls of Jericho and they blow the trumpets and then somehow the walls come down and they fight the battle. And then there's a, there's a, a scene in, 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 in Joshua chapter five where they rendezvous with an angel of the Lord who happens to be a commander of all of heaven's armies. And Joshua has the nerve and audacity to ask this angel, are you for us or are you for them? And the angel answers and says, I'm for God. The question is, are you for me, Joshua? Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, once said, the truth is oftentimes found in the tension. King of Kings Jesus once said, it's the truth that sets you free. Which means sometimes we don't get to just take the, the easy way out of half-truth answers that sort of explain it to avoid the tension. Sometimes we have to be tethered to the tension without compromising our convictions and embrace the the messiness of the in-between middle and the paradox of the pendulum. And when it comes to two words, grace and truth, I just think we can't help but put them on a pendulum swing. Because grace and truth, I mean, one of these things is not like the other. And the other one is not like the other. Grace and truth, like, I see these two things sometimes as like when you make homemade dressing because you're trying to be healthy, it's just olive oil and balsam and vinegar, and you, you shake it for like, and, and for like 30 seconds they stay together, but then they spread apart again as soon as they get a chance to. Grace and truth. Just, just consider with me for a second the amazing grace of our God. Maybe you have to go back in your mind to the, the BC era in your life before you knew Jesus, before you had this relationship with him, before you, you tasted the, the sweet taste of the grace that saved you. This is the God of grace who leaves the 99 for the one. This is the God who even on the worst week of your life proudly calls you his daughter, proudly calls you his son. His grace is stronger than, than the dirtiest moment of your life. His grace is stronger than all of your sin. His grace, the amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved somebody like me. I once was lost, now I'm found, was blind, and now I see because grace, there is something so life-changing and intoxicating about the grace of our God. And in that same space is his truth. So consider with me the truth of God for a moment. His standard, his holiness. He's a God of justice. He's a God of rightful wrath. The God who, as far as the heavens are above the earth, that's how far beyond my thinking and my logic is his thinking and his logic. The God who is worthy right now of my fear. The God who is worthy of my awe, my reverence, and my worship. The book of Daniel would say, right now, this God is in the heavens, and he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and not a soul can shake their fist at him, and nobody gets to take him to court when they're unhappy with the way he's choosing to run his universe. That even the prominence of the most famous celebrity and even the glory of the most powerful leader is, is, is a candle to the sun next to the prominence and glory of, of this God. This is his truth. The standard 
the higher standard he calls his people to than he does the world. We have the God who put on skin and bone, the word became flesh and showed up representing the glory of God in the fullness of grace and truth at the exact same time. And sometimes, in an effort to show more grace, we lower the standard of truth. And sometimes, in an effort to uphold truth, we crush people in the process. Grace without truth ceases to be grace. And truth without grace is no longer true. Chris Hodges said it this way, grace without truth is meaningless. Truth without grace is mean. Grace and truth together is medicine. Red Rocks, my point is this, as Christians, our calling is a double major. Grace and truth. You don't get to to major on grace and minor in truth, and you don't get to major on truth and minor in grace. Jesus came, not 50% grace and 50% truth, but 100% grace and 100% truth. The word became flesh in the fullness of both. And to me, nowhere is that more clear in all of scripture than John chapter eight in the story of the woman who gets caught in adultery. I think we see these two things on display in a beautiful paradox of two things that seem to contradict but are true at the same time and need each other. So 11 verses starting in John 8 verse one, I'm gonna read it to you. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery and in the law of Moses, it's commanded for us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. He's officially ignoring them right here. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you among us without sin be the the first one to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the oldest ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. So this is a a hot, heavy, and heated situation. And in order to uh, understand the tension of this scene, we really gotta get into the context of this scene. So let me see if I can help us just a little bit. This is a people whose religion is based on the law from the Old Testament that was given to them by God through the prophet Moses. The 10 commandments, all of them summed up in the 10 commandments. And this woman just broke it. This woman is a lawbreaker. 
And I know that this sounds harsh, and it is, but according to the truth of the law, she rightfully deserves an execution. Now, so does the guy. Takes two to tango. Not sure where he's at. It's another sermon for another day. But regardless, let's make this story a little bit more personal. The, the, the crux of John chapter eight, the point of John chapter eight is not, come on guys, don't be, don't be like these jerks with the rocks. Don't be mean. The world's got enough mean people. Be nice like Jesus, guys. Come on, WWJD guys. Be kind. And I'm all, like, absolutely. Even like the be kind movement, I'm all about it. I'm just saying, if, if being kind was the answer to a broken, hurting humanity, it would have worked by now. That's like layer five of the onion with this story. I wanna look at the main point, which is this. You and me are the woman in this story. Romans says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Romans goes on to say, the wages of sin is in fact death. Much like the exact same situation. And like all of us do at some point, this woman just got found out. And she gets dragged out of a tent, caught in the act of adultery, probably wrapped in nothing but a sheet and thrown into the dirt by an angry mob right in front of Jesus. And no doubt she wanted to meet Jesus, but not like this. And the scribes and the Pharisees trapped Jesus with a really, really good question. These guys never get credit, and I'm for them never getting credit. However, this is, this is a good trap. And here's why. They say, Jesus, the law of Moses demands that this woman should be stoned. So what do you say? I mean, guys, imagine. I know sometimes we just read these like Bible stories. This is a historical moment. Imagine the tension of this moment. This woman, I mean, and I, I love, I love her, man. She I love reading this story, I love this woman. But we, we can't look past the fact that she just, she either just blew up her whole marriage or somebody else's family. And like the guys are, are standing for truth with the law, they're standing for truth and they're right, they're right. But how many know you can be so right and so wrong and no scripture but not the author Jesus who's right in front of them Jesus stands in the tension does he trample on truth and the law in order to show grace to this woman or does he trample on this woman in order to uphold truth this is one of those moments, man, we're about to find out what is more important to God, grace or truth. And I sometimes wonder if this whole thing was a divine setup, not from some Pharisees and scribes, but from an awesome and loving God who wants to reveal the gospel and show us that he's not afraid to stand in the tension. Because what does Jesus do? Well, first of all, it's so interesting, he doesn't give them the green light to stone her which makes you think 
I mean, first of all, it, it makes you think like, I mean, it is cooler, is it not, to choose grace over truth? Jesus, that's kinda, yeah, like, I'm glad you did that. However, let's be fair. In order for God to be perfect, God has to be just in every way. And in order to be just, he can't look the other way. I mean, is Jesus giving sin the wink and the gun here? Jesus, didn't you have foreknowledge of this moment way back in the day when you wrote the Ten Commandments? Are you, are you cheating on, the own, on your own system that you set into motion? Is Jesus like giving this woman glances like, hey, you, rough morning. Um, lucky for you, I'm not the grumpy God of truth from the Old Testament. For I have come to swing the pendulum to grace. So many of us think that's the takeaway of the story, that God was the truth God, and then in a beautiful moment, he chose to be the grace God. Like Jesus is looking at her like, all right, get out of here before I have to kill you. Come on, I love you. Get going. Sin, the wink and the gun. I mean, guys, there's an execution rightfully deserved here. There just is, there's no way around. And there's, there's only one way that Jesus can show grace to this woman and stay within the confines of truth and justice. And it's by taking the execution on her behalf. Which of course he knows he's going to do very soon. Does Jesus stand for grace or does Jesus stand for truth? Actually, Jesus kneels in love in the dirt. He kneels in love in the dirt. And he starts, he starts doodling, ignoring these. Like I picture Jesus looking at this woman and um, he's not scowling or frowning. He can't with what he says to her. Try saying I don't condemn you while scowling at somebody. Um, I've told you guys this before but it's worth hearing every day God's not shocked by your sin. Um, you're not the one person who has like wowed him with your ability to mess up. Where God looks at you and is like, oh my me, like I just, I wasn't ready for that. I'm omniscient and I, I didn't see that. Um, she gets caught in the act of adultery, dragged out into the dirt at a religious festival. It doesn't get much worse. And this is how the God of the universe responds to her. Starts drawing something in the dirt. We don't know what, what it was that he was drawing. Some scholars believe he, he wrote, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, as the two ways that Jesus chose to sum up the entire law of the Old Testament. Some scholars believe that he wrote, I think it's maybe Jeremiah 17 that says, all of those who turn your back on me, I will write your names in the dust. Some scholars have a theory that he wrote the names of every one of the dudes with the rocks, and then next to each of their names, he wrote their sin. I kind of like that. Unless I was there, then I wouldn't want that. We all, we all want justice until we're on the stand. We all want justice until we're on the stand. Nobody really knows what he wrote, but we do know what his posture was. And it was in the dirt. It's interesting, Jesus comes down. Does that sound familiar? The word became flesh, heaven to earth, all the way to earth, dirt. The word humility 
It's rooted in this word humus from Latin that also means dirt. And humanity. Humanity, dirt, humility. If you go back and read Genesis chapter two, when God makes Adam, he makes him from dirt and dust and breathes into him the breath of life and the imago Dei, the image of God. From dirt I came, from dust I came, into dust I shall return. My breath is borrowed in between. Which is interesting to me, right? Because God put on skin and bone, became human, and not 50% divinity, 50% humanity. 100% divinity, 100% humanity. And the humility of God, first of all, like Philippians 2 says, he didn't consider equality with God in heaven as something to be grasped, but he lowered himself, made the decision. There is nothing more spiritual than to choose. He made the decision. And then not only is he now here, but now he's making another decision to kneel into the dirt. The humility. I, that phrase has been ringing in my mind, like same pride, different dress code. How many things can you apply that to? And maybe the way to slow the swing of the pendulum is humility. Jesus in humility gets down to the dirt, to her human level. And he gives the most brilliant answer ever given to these guys. He says, he who is without sin, go ahead and stone her. So the same truth they were bringing on her he just, like an Uno card, the reverse card, phew, stopped them in their tracks. He said, if you wanna play by those rules, we can play by those rules. So stone her and then we'll do each one of you. Huh. And one by one, they dropped their rocks and they walked away. I love, obviously, that they dropped their rocks, but I wish they had stayed because the Son of God came for them too. We paint them as the bad guys of the story. Remember who the real enemy is, Katniss Everdeen. It's not people. It's not people. For God so loved people. And, you know, this woman, I love this story so much because for her, that started as the worst day of her life and finished as the best. God can do that. Because um, let's say there's, there's her, and let's say there's 39 guys. So 40 people total were present that day with Jesus. All 40 are unconditional love, are unconditionally loved. But only one of them found out she was unconditionally loved at the same moment she was more exposed and known than she's ever been in her life. Not just the good, maybe more important, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Everything we try to hide from each other and from God and God goes, I see all of who you are and I love you so much. That's called freedom. <laughs> and she walked away that day with freedom. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. He so loved the world. He so loved the world that Jesus came to the planet, right? From love. John 1, 14. The word became flesh. Jesus came to the planet in the fullness of grace and truth. Love is grace and truth. And if I had to put an order to it, I would say grace and truth. But if I had to put an importance to them, I couldn't. 
because God doesn't pick. He, he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill truth with grace. And these guys walk away and it's just him and her. And he, he looks at her and says, hey, where's your accusers? Does anybody condemn you? She says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I. Grace. Now go and sin no more. Truth. Grace and truth. All I know is that our God came in the fullness of grace and truth. And all I know is that the heart of this God and the best definition of love that is not something he does but is who he is, is the fullness of grace and truth. When you major on truth without any grace, this is kind of like when this is religion. This is Jesus plus something is gonna keep me saved. So grace saved me once upon a time, but now you're working for the rest of your life because you believe at some level that God is just always a little bit mad at you. This is like when you treat God like he's the dean of the university called life. And he, you're, you're just trying to not go to the principal's office every single day. And God's just, a, he's a little bit annoyed with you. And so you use religion by doing these things and not doing these things, I can keep God from being mad at me. And on your good days and on your good weeks, it leads to self-righteousness because you're crushing it. And on your bad days and on your bad weeks, it leads to shame because you're not. That's all religion ever leads to when you major on grace and you only minor on truth. That's why you need the fullness of both. So long as you swing the pendulum over here to legalism, you are going to play an exhausting game called religion of on the good days, the days where you wake up in the morning at 4 a.m. and you're just crushing it as a Christian, just praying for everybody in the yellow pages and you memorize another chapter of Galatians and then you get give that homeless guy $20 and you bring some, some canned food for the, for the drive out in the lobby and, and it's self-righteous. It's like the roller coaster. Click, 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 self-righteousness. God's pretty pumped on me today until that night and you fail or you mess up and then it's shame. Oh, but I'll get it back. I'll get back in his good standing. Let me, let me start behaving again. Let me start crushing it as a Christian. Self-righteousness, it's crazy how fast, how fast religion leads you to ranking the sin of other people against yours and gets you thinking like these Pharisees that because you had a good day, God's more pumped on click, 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 click until you mess up again inevitably. Playing the game of religion to sort of manage your sin, to keep God not mad at you, is like trying to hold a beach ball underwater at the pool. Have you ever tried to do that? It's like you're trying, to, you're trying to hold lust down and as soon as you get lust under control, it pops out as anger over here. As soon as you get anger under, it pops out as comparison over here and you're just exhausted trying to manage all of this sin so God won't be mad at you. Meanwhile, all your friends are on the side of the pool and you're like, guys, hey, come try this Christianity thing theoretically it's supposed to be awesome. Get your beach ball. And they're, they're over there going like, dude, you look miserable. Because <laughs> who would look at that and call that freedom? The world doesn't wonder what it is you have that they don't when you're playing that game over and over and over. That's exhausting. Your friends would be like, hey, it's a better idea. Get rid of your beach ball. Get out of the pool. Let me give you a hug and pay for a counseling session because you look exhausted. This is, if you, if you tend to, 
You swing the pendulum to, I major on truth and legalism and you feel like, man, God's just always a little bit mad at me. And man, stop trying so hard. Enjoy his grace, man. But here's what happens. This is the, this is, man, this is Austin and my generation. This is so much of our church. I know this story personally is when you grow up and maybe you sort of like in youth group, you hear about like a little bit of legalism and you gotta do these things and not do these things and that becomes like in, in place of a relationship with God. And, and, and then as soon as you go to college, man, you just swing in like a wrecking ball straight to the other side. That's where I wanted to swing in like a wrecking ball, but this isn't strong enough for me to do that. Like you, you, you leave for college and then maybe like that one girl, you run from church for a while and from God for a while, but then you show up to a church like Red Rocks and you hear about the amazing grace of this God and you're like, this is awesome. And you swing it completely to the, you're like, so I can do anything I want and this God's just gonna forgive me? No, like this is great. But you swing straight past the gospel. You're now still, you just have a different vantage point of it but it still shows you don't fully understand the heart of your God and what he has for you. And over here, you just have Adam and Eve syndrome, like God's holding out on you and you gotta try to find all this peace and joy and fulfillment and contentment that you're looking for outside of him because surely he's holding out on you and you're always just gonna hit a ceiling for the joy that you can experience in this life. That's why Galatians chapter five says, once you've received the gospel, it is for freedom you've been set free. Now stand firm. And don't swing to that side. And don't swing to that. You need to fight. That's why we join together every single weekend and we just talk about the gospel because it's so easy to sway this way. It is so easy to sway this way. I mean, if that is Jesus as the dean of the Life University who you're trying to avoid his office and getting kicked out of school, this is cool dad Jesus who's just making it rain on your life with get out of hell free cards. Like, man, I can, I can get drunk. I can have sex with whoever I want. I mean, come on, man. And this, you still just reveal you don't fully understand how good the heart of God is towards you. And then years go by and then it's funny because we tag a, a God card to this and then you start blaming God for the consequences of decisions you made. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> it is for freedom you have been set free. Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth. And I just, I wonder sometimes if it's humility that is the posture that slows the swing of the pendulum. You know, our, it's, our, it's our posture that preaches to the world. It's our, it's our poise that makes us, that's our witness. I mean, if, if we're not the, the least worried ones right now, who's going to be, you guys? If we're not the hope-filled ones, who's gonna be? Our posture preaches, our poise is our witness. What's the posture of Jesus? That humility, that humanity, that grace, that truth. I was on a flight uh, like about a month ago and I was landing in Denver. And when you come over the Rocky Mountains, there's oftentimes like crazy turbulence. And I used to love turbulence, man. I used to be like, man, like those, those quick, you know, 500 foot free fall drops that feel like you're on the Tower of Terror over and over again, 35,000 feet in the air. Let's go. The more, the better. This is like a free roller coaster, you know? I'm 35 now. I don't like it anymore, guys. 
I like, I'm starting to get motion sickness. I, that never used to be me, you know? And uh, like, and this was a small plane. So like every gust of wind just felt like it was gonna snap the wings off this plane. You hear the metal the plane's made of like, you're like, oh God, was that an engine? Please let the engines be there. Um, and the whole time the flight attendants couldn't be bothered. One of them was sleeping, taking a nap. And I so appreciated it. Because they know turbulence is part of flying. In this world, you'll have turbulence. Take heart. The pilot's not afraid of turbulence. <laughs> um, their posture, it's when the flight attendants start to panic that you should probably start to panic. But as long as they're good, I mean, that preaches, that posture preaches. So as the messengers of love, of our God who is love, in the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth, our posture preaches, a posture of, of humility, like the God who was the word who came to this planet, like the Jesus who was the Messiah who got down into the dirt. Think about Moses. When Moses was getting the Ten Commandments originally from God up on Mount Sinai, he was with God for a few weeks on the top of the mountain while all of his people were busy building a golden calf as an idol and worshiping it. And then Moses comes down with the Great Commandments and is with the, with the Ten Commandments and is like, uh, hey guys, like, what's, what's up? What are you doing? And they have been worshiping an idol for the last two weeks. They're not interested in, in the Ten Commandments. But they saw the face of Moses radiant with the grace of God. Almost like a signal flare from their God who says, I still see you, I still want you, I still love you, this is my grace, now here's some truth. That same exact posture. And so I, we focus on Jesus, you guys. We come to the cross. I, I can't help but picture a pendulum of grace and truth and see a cross and the humility of Jesus to leave paradise, the only one who never deserved any sort of punishment for sin because he knew none, literally became sin so we could be righteous in front of God. The one who was infinitely right became wrong so you could be right with God. The one who was the highest became the lowest in order to lift you up. I mean, you think about the God of the universe who was there in the beginning who said, let there be light. Let a 16-year-old girl named Mary mother him and teach him how to say mama and dada. The God who names constellations and hangs galaxies across the universe like ornaments on a Christmas tree. Let his dad, Joseph, teach him how to tie his sandals and hammer two boards together. Humility showed up in love as grace and as truth, amen? Will you guys stand? If, uh, if you bow your heads, close your eyes, and maybe hold out your hands just like this, almost as a posture to receive grace and to receive truth. Um, first of all, if anybody in here wants to receive that grace for the very first time, you know God's talking to you right now. This is no religion, this is relationship. God wants to know you. 
and he wants to make that great exchange with you where he takes your sin and gives you his righteousness, much like he did to that woman all those years ago. If you want that, if you just raise your hand right now, um, I'd love to just pray for you. Be bold, just raise your hand. Nothing magical about a hand raise, amen, let's go. Um, that external mo motion just seems to solidify an internal transformation. The grace that is saving you, amen. Thank you so much, let's go. Okay, you can put your hands down. Um, all right, let me pray for all of us. Heavenly Father, would you, would you draw near to us and would you pull us close to you? Would you wrap us in your grace? And would you beckon us forward with your truth? Would you fuel us in your grace? And would you cry out to us and call out to us with your truth? that has more for us and always will. Help us to, um, God, I just pray that this, this paradox and this pendulum and this, I pray that it would make our souls and our minds just bigger. That you don't fit into any of the boxes we try to make for you. So would you just destroy those boxes over this series? We worship you in Jesus' name, amen.